Welcome aboard on Consider Everything. I'm your host, Brig Haynes, and let's go explore today to improve our mental health tomorrow. So I am here with my uncle, Jeff. His name is Dr. Jeff Anderson. I'm super excited to be here with him and hear what he has to say about the, the topic at hand. So Jeff, if you want to kind of introduce yourself to our guests, just so they can get to know you and, and understand your background a little bit. Sure. So I'm a, a neuroradiologist and neuroscientist. Uh, my training was uh, through an MD and PhD degree at Northwestern University. And then I did residency and fellowship at uh, the University of Utah in neuroradiology. So my background is that clinically, I read MRI scans and CT scans of the brain and spine. And as a research focus, I have done studies investigating the large-scale organization of the brain, uh, brain networks, how they're connected and wired together with a specific interest for neurodevelopmental disorders and neuropsychiatric disorders like autism, bipolar disorder, um, other conditions that affect the brain. So on one hand, I try and diagnose these disorders with imaging. And then on the other, um, I try and investigate how the brain is organized differently in different conditions and how that might help us eventually understand the conditions and lead to new treatments. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, I know that uh, you were doing a few studies. I remember I was pretty young when this happened, but you were talking about how you were studying the brain when somebody says they have an overwhelming feeling of, of spirituality or joy. I remember you were, I vaguely remember yes. you doing a, a research paper on this. If you want to kind of describe that, because I was pretty young, so I didn't understand it too well, just because I, my brain capacity was pretty low at that time. But sure, um, sure. If you just want to kind of talk about that, because I thought it was really interesting. I just want to get to know more about it. Yeah, it, it's been an interest of mine to study altered states of consciousness. Um, and that's included studies we've done on meditation, um, we, we did studies on Zen masters and, and how the brain looks when they're in a meditative state. We've also done studies um, under uh, individuals that were having uh, a Western spiritual religious experience. And we did one particular study on a group of LDS uh, return missionaries um, when they were feeling the spirit. This was a func fMRI, functional MRI experiment, trying to understand what networks in the brain were active when people were reporting peak spiritual experience. So what did you guys find during that, that, that research when you guys were looking at the brain? Were there, were there connections that you were seeing that maybe people were thinking they were having experiences when they really weren't or their brain was faking them out? What did you guys notice during that? Well, so the time. first thing we noticed was that people were able to have those spiritual experiences in the environment of an MRI scanner, and, and it was striking. So people in our study, virtually every one of them reported feeling powerful, profound spiritual experiences that were similar to the types of experiences they would have in their own spiritual practice in prayer or at, uh, at church, or and, and some of them um, considered it uh, one of the more powerful spiritual experiences that's, that they had had. In fact, a lot of our participants were in tears by the conclusion of the experience. And so we, we felt like it was, it was a pretty good representation of the types of experiences that people were having, um, which, which made it really interesting to look at what was going on in the brain. So when you guys were doing, I know you guys, you've already talked about this, but when you were doing the research, did you notice that <clears throat> some of the people were claiming to, you know, to believe that they were feeling something and, but really you guys were just kind of messing with the situation or changing variables, changing the oh, environment. We're, we're very much trying to get an authentic spiritual experience. Yeah. I mean, we did many, many different tests while they were in the MRI scanner, um, but all of it was calibrated to trying to cultivate an authentic spiritual feeling that was similar to what people would have in other contexts. Like at church or during a, the mass or et cetera. Yeah. And did, how did yeah. you guys do that? Did you connect something to their brain to 
when they weren't, or did you do a, a blind test where they thought that they weren't being affected, but really they were by something that you guys were, well, were so doing? A lot of it is when you're in, in the MRI scanner, it can actually be a pretty private place. So I don't know if you've ever experienced an MRI scanner or your listeners, but but you you go into the bore of the magnet and it's it it it's it can be a little bit loud. I mean, people have headphones or earplugs, but it's also sort of kind of creates a white noise environment, and it can actually be a pretty peaceful place. <clears throat> um, once you kind of get settled in in the environment and you're there with your thoughts by yourself and we have a camera hooked up so that you can see um, video stimuli, you have headphones, you can hear auditory stimuli and we would play movies and, and the LDS church has done a lot of the heavy lifting there. So they have these videos content that they've produced for this express purpose of trying to, uh, instill spiritual experiences and these these uh, LDS produced content um, were pretty effective at at, uh, at allowing people to 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 go there to that place where they they feel like they're revisiting um, important uh, video content from from experiences past as well as we had periods of, of prayer. Um, uh, and then we had uh, a number of quotations that we would show them from world or LDS religious leaders um, that were LDS or, or Christian themed content that they would contemplate on. One thing that we observed was that when people were feeling um, these types of spiritual experiences, it was surprising to us how reproducible um, the areas of the brain were that were active. So there was a specific core network of regions that were active that, that wasn't active when they were just sitting thinking about their day before the experience. Cause we, you know, we, we had a period of kind of con a control period before we started with the stimuli and the prayer and the videos and, and, and all that. And, and when we compared the brain, the areas that were more active um, were specifically areas that uh, were related to uh, moral reasoning, uh, attention, focused attention. And uh, probably most important of all was this area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And the nucleus accumbens is the general purpose reward network of the brain. This is the area that's active when you're feeling joy or, um, or love. It's active for parental or romantic love experiences. It's active when you um, are experiencing music that you love. It's active um, in response to methamphetamines or cocaine, um, this is the area that's targeted. It's the pleasure center of the brain. And, and so what we, what we found was that these types of stimuli um, in an individual who was trained or practiced to experience those feelings in response to these stimuli would actually elicit this, this, these feelings of reward, just as if, um, you know, you had uh, a different type of experience, whether it be partner bonding or or drug use or whatever else that's designed to to induce pleasure, and it was it was specific. So we would actually have people um, in the scanner push a button that they were holding in their hand when they were experiencing peak spiritual ecstasy, if you will, or when, when the spiritual experience were at their maximum. And when we looked at the button presses, there was a spike in the activity in the nucleus accumbens about a second before they pushed the button. I mean, it oh, was so when specific. they were about to push, you guys saw so, that spike. Yeah. So they were, when they were really feeling it and say, this is, this is the spirit and they would push the button. It's nucleus accumbens. Um, I mean, at least it's correlated with activity in the nucleus accumbens. 
um, that reward center was was a was a big part of the spiritual experience that people report. Moving a little bit in a different direction, it's related to this, but moving in a different direction. So speaking of people who, uh, you know, maybe they're believing they're having an experience, even though it may not be that the case, it may just be programming, right? They may just have been programmed or whether coincidentally or not, um, moving on to more of a, a mental mental illness kind of situation. So do you think that <clears throat> some people are misdiagnosed for a mental illness um, when it really is a physical illness or vice versa? Do you Have you noticed that in maybe some of the studies you've looked at or even done yourself? Well, mental, to some extent, is also physical. We think of mental disorders as brain disorders. We don't always understand the exact pathophysiology that is responsible for things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, but we think they originate from, from the brain. And, and what is physical and what is mental is, in some sense, a matter of semantics. We, we, we think all of these disorders have a physical uh, origin in the brain. And that's, you know, an ongoing project to figure out exactly how and why. Uh, some of it is more hardware and some of it is more software in the brain, meaning that some of it is you have a brain disorder like Parkinson's disease or Huntington's chorea, where there are specific parts of the brains that are degenerated, where those those centers just don't work anymore, and that, that causes reproducible symptoms of the disorder. In other cases, it seems to be a more uh, software-type process, where it's how the brain networks are interacting and 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 participating in cognitive thought that that seems to be disordered, whether the networks are 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 talking to each other too frequently or that they are less stable or too stable, uh, um, those kinds of things. And going along those lines, so people that say, because nowadays it's it's pretty common for people to either claim or, or be diagnosed with a mental illness. And do you think maybe this is a little bit of the situ this situation where people can believe that they you know are having a mental illness, but couldn't that just be you know natural ups and downs of life? Or since you've you. since you've looked at the brain and you've you've looked at it and you've done lots of MRIs and scans, have you noticed that there's a difference between just natural ups and downs of life and depression, anxiety, bipolar, etc.? Yeah. Like, what are the differences you can well, see? Well. Pretty much all of these, what we would call mental illnesses, exist on a spectrum. Um, and we often think of this as, as a black or white condition, like you have depression, you have anxiety, you have schizophrenia. And, and it's not so cut and dry um, in my world. Um, so, so most of the, the what we call, you know, axis one um, neuropsychiatric disorders um, so you know major depression bipolar disorder schizophrenia um, also have phenotypes that exist on a milder scale sometimes some of which we would call personality disorders um, you know you may have not full-blown schizophrenia but have a schizotypal personality disorder or you might have obsessive compulsive disorder or an obsessive compulsive personality type or personality disorder, or you may just be someone who, you know, just likes things the way they are. And you, you're a little compulsive about, about uh, many uh, things that you experience in, in life. And, and so on that spectrum of what, when do we call it a disorder? It's often a little more subjective than people imagine. So, for example, we have this uh, book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that has been sort of the Bible for diagnosing neuropsychiatric disorders. And, and it's, it's surprising to a lot of people that don't do brain imaging or are maybe really active in psychiatry to understand that we can't do an MRI scan that tells you if you have bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. We, we just can't see it. We don't know exactly where to look yet. You're still trying or to pinpoint. We just don't have the tools. 
So yeah. when it comes to diagnosing these sort of disorders, it's really more about symptom clusters. So it's like, um, do you, I mean, we have a, a series of specific questions we can ask and say, well, if you have, you know, two of these symptoms from cluster A and two from cluster B, and, um, you know, you have three of these five conditions apply, then we call it, you know, bipolar disorder. And, and it, it's, uh, it's more of an art than it, it is uh, a specific science. And so, so yeah, there's a lot of overlap with, with what we call subclinical phenotypes um, where people might have conditions that, that affect their life or, or are in some way suboptimal, but, but uh, may not rise to the level of the disorder. And usually where the rubber meets the road is to what extent is it disrupting your life and causing uh, a maladaptive state? So it's more of you guys aren't able to. <clears throat> sorry, I got something stuck in my throat. Um, so you guys are more able to. They're not able to pinpoint a specific area that's activated when somebody has bipolar or schizophrenia. That's just it's that's something you guys are looking for, but it's just not quite there yet. So so I've done a lot of these studies. That was that was kind of what I did for the last twenty years. And um, let me tell you where we're at <laughs> across the board. <laughs> I cannot put somebody in the scanner, nor I think can anybody um, anywhere in the world put somebody in a scanner and say with confidence, you have bipolar disorder or you have schizophrenia. What I can do is if I have 30 people with bipolar disorder and 30 people with without bipolar disorder, I can tell you which group is which. In other words, we have uh, findings that that are associated and, you know, we can use statistics to identify patterns that identify one group versus the other. But when it comes to specific individuals, the inter-individual variation is much greater than the variation associated with the disorder. And so if you just look at the bell curve of where somebody might fall along any particular test that we do, um, there's more idiosyncratic variation among individuals than there is um, specific signal associated with the conditions. So it's really only when we start looking at population analysis that we can reliably say, oh, that's what this is. Um, we, oh. we can't really diagnose individuals, at least not yet. But you can, at least you guys can, so you're saying you can't, without, you guys can't just look at somebody and tell, oh, they have bipolar, but what you can do is based on certain variables that you guys input or whatever inputs you put in and the amount of people you put in, you can, if you're able to control the situation and, and say, for instance, there's certain pictures that can spike a certain bipolar person's brain that shows up on an MRI scan that other people don't, you're able to look at somebody based on different performances or different, what do you call them? Uh, different inputs. Yeah. 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 Depending on the condition. I mean, we can assign probability that somebody yeah. has a condition like let's take one I know well, for example, autism. And there are a lot of, of brain imaging phenotypes that are associated with autism. And I can probably train a classifier in the right conditions. If, if I use a specific scanner that I've scanned other people on, um, I could probably get somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90% accuracy. That's, that's kind of where we're at with most of these conditions, which frankly isn't good enough for clinical use. I mean, it, it, in some, some medical scenarios, it's really helpful to say, you know, there's an 80% probability that you have condition X. You know, it would be great for, for looking at um, things where, where you don't have to be certain. Um, for, for things like mental health disorders, it's frankly not as helpful to to have a test like that where there's that much uncertainty yeah or it's not something where where it's like i mean i'm I'm sure there's discrepancies within physical the physical uh health world as well where they're not 100 percent sure on things either but of course there's always uh, a sensitivity and specificity to every test and so for something like um d-dimer which is a blood test that you can do that decides how likely is somebody to have a blood clot um it's a screening test. It says, can you, um, in a certain population of patients say, it's probably not worth chasing this, um, if it's negative. 
Now, if it's positive, it doesn't mean they have a pulmonary embolus or a, a deep venous thrombosis in their leg, but it means that they have a higher probability of that and maybe it's worth continuing to look. Um, and and so that's that kind of scenario could be applied to psychiatry. We could find intermediate phenotypes of saying, you know, somebody has this imaging picture where say their functional connectivity to a certain network is, is a little bit higher. And maybe in that population of patients, it makes sense to chase things a little further. Um, we could do stuff like that, but, but the field's not quite right yet for uh, widespread implementation of these types of tests. They're expensive uh, as a screening condition. It, it may or may not be cost-effective. Um, so you guys are able to, as long as you're able to uh, control the, the the situation or control the experiment, you guys can determine if somebody's going to have bipolar or not. But you can't just put somebody in a scanner and say, "Oh, there's some there's there's a little." You guys haven't been able to pinpoint where in the brain it's it's showing if you know because there's not a certain area that that's yeah. activated that says, "Oh, this person is bipolar." You guys are able to once you're able to change the situation and implement things, then you can start to see if somebody's connected to a bipolar or even a schizophrenia or whatever the situation is, but you're not able to just throw somebody in there yet and be like, okay, this person has bipolar because this part of the brain showing this, right? Yeah. We, we don't have highly sensitive or specific tests yet for, for conditions like that. And with, uh, you know, going on, we're just, this is going to be all about mental illness today. So it's just going to be sure. one long, That's long great. mental illness. This is the whole purpose of the podcast, but so I know mental illness back even 50 years ago, it was kind of taboo to talk about, you know, there were people that had it and, but it it does seem like nowadays it's been skyrocketing the amount of diagnoses that, that people have been either claiming they have or doctors have been giving. Do you think that there's an experiment done on a group of, uh, who was it? I can't remember exactly. There was a group, a study done on, uh, I don't know if it was a students or what, but they, there was a, a room set up where they had, one one people in one area or sorry they had one uh, person in one room and they had another person in another and there was a two-way mirror so the person who was looking in could see but the person looking at and the other way couldn't see the other person behind the mirror i'm sure you've heard this experiment but what they did is they would they connected a little bit of an electric shock to the person who was sitting down in one room and there was one other person looking and they had a connections to the brain to see what was going on when they were watching this. And what they found was that the people that were watching this person, you know, getting getting shocked, they actually experienced it themselves within the brain. So it was it was a you know people. It's not just that they had to feel it. If they've watched something, or they hear about it, they're gonna they're, they might even feel that pain or anxiety within themselves as well. And since yeah. mental illness is talked about a lot nowadays, I, I don't know if it's for good or for bad. I do think it needs to be talked about, but it it does appear that it's, it's talked about quite a bit. And I'm wondering if people are starting to have that effect on themselves where they're it's just they're talking about it all the time and it's it's thrown in their face and they start to kind of take mm -hmm. that that persona or take that uh, as a grain of salt where they think, oh, if if I'm experiencing this, then it must mean I have depression or anxiety or. I see. Yeah. Do you, so what would you say about that? Yeah, so with most of these conditions, um, there are some increases in prevalence in recent years. And there's an open question to what extent this is more reporting. In other words, we have a greater cultural familiarity with these conditions and they're just being diagnosed more often because they're recognized more often. Or to what extent there's actually a true change in the the risk of the condition, and let me just give you uh, one example. So, when we talk about depression and anxiety in young people, um, I think that in the last five years or even the last ten years, there's definitely been an increase in the prevalence of these conditions. Um, and I think there's really solid evidence that a lot of this is, is genuine and tied to adoption of social media use, especially in adolescent girls. Um, I, the evidence is very compelling. 
um, that this isn't just that we're recognizing it or diagnosing it more frequently, but there's actually um, an increased risk of anxiety and depression due to cultural phenomena like social media. Um, we, we have, over my career in the last 20 years, we started out saying that autism was prevalent in um, you know, one in 200 individuals. And then that kind of altered to one in 150 and then one in 100 and one in 87 was a, a recent estimate I heard. And, and I don't think we know for sure if autism really is more common or if we just diagnose it more frequently. Um, there's, there's good arguments for both of those. And, uh, you know, part of it is, is, we, we just diagnose less severe variants now um, instead of somebody that's, you know, in a corner drooling in a cup. We, we diagnose people who are very functional where it's really a, a personality phenotype that's, that's in some sense is a normal variant. And as our approach to neurodiversity changes in society where we're more accepting of people who think differently, um, who who might look at the world in a different way, but are highly functional and such valuable contributing members of society. Um, appropriately, we're starting to recognize the gifts that individuals have that are unique and the unique challenges that they may come with. And, uh, and, and yeah, we're, we're putting labels on that more frequently. And it might be a good thing though, because it, it, you know, the more that we talk about it and the more that we recognize certain, not even illnesses, just certain differences in, in between people, <clears throat> I think it might be good to actually, you know, that's, that might be a reason why we have more diagnoses because we, we have more knowledge of what we can recognize in somebody who, who is going through that or has that certain, that certain illness. And so maybe that's, you know, the reason why we're having higher higher numbers is because we're able to recognize it a little bit more and we have yeah. a better idea. Um, and to move more, actually, I was going to talk about this a little bit with you. Uh, this is another experiment. This one is pretty simple, but I was talking to, uh, and his name is Carl Dumas. He's a, he's just one of my good friends. I, I go to the gym with him and I see him there and we'll, we'll talk. And uh, he's not a, an expert or anything, but he did talk about how there have been a lot of studies done where Doctors that study whether it's mental illness or you know, a certain physical illness, sometimes when they get into it too much, they actually start to experience those feelings themselves. You know, the more they study it, the more they they are into that. Do you think that maybe because, you know, like I was saying before, mental illness, it's, it's talked about a lot. Can that same thing happen yeah. to people that are trying to self-diagnose, that are trying to yeah. find out what their their cure is? Do you, what, do you, what do you think about it's that? It's not just mental illness. I'll tell you, every medical student has just about every condition that they study as they're going through medical school. You know, it's like, oh, maybe I have porphyria, or maybe I have, um, you know, as you as you run through the symptoms, um, there's there's a, a tendency to towards hypochondriasm. Um, in, in most individuals, um, you know, you get over it. Um, as far as, 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 uh, is somebody, somebody who's a professional working with certain disorders more likely to develop that disorder? I'm not sure that's true. There may be a selection bias that when something is important or meaningful to you, you may be more likely to pursue that, that field. Um, you know, there's a cliche that, that psychiatrists, you know, may, may benefit from other psychiatrists. And, and, you know, I, I think it's, I, I don't know that the prevalence in the population is really, is really different. Um, and certainly you don't develop liver cancer by working with liver cancer patients. Um, and, and I don't know if it's, it's really any different for mental illness. So moving on to more of the you know, you see, because you've studied the brain, you know what it's like, you you know what in and out. If you ask anybody, you'd be the perfect person to ask if you've been studying it for 20 plus years now. So when you're looking at a brain scan, I don't know if this is, you know, genes are obviously different. You can't see genes on a brain scan, but, you know, studies that you've done or maybe working with other other experts yourself, have you guys noticed that there are genes that can determine whether or not somebody's going to have a mental illness or is that oh, still course, kind of absolutely yeah no that's what very well characterized for all of the major mental illnesses what is the heritability of the condition and some of that comes from twin studies 
where you have one twin that develops the disorder and one twin that doesn't compared to siblings that aren't identical twins. Um, and and you can you can make very precise estimates of the degree to which uh, a condition is heritable. Now, it's also true that that as you look at the genetic um, predisposition versus environmental predisposition for any particular condition, that that can be uh, dependent on on culture on. Um, you know, it may be that something is more heritable over time. Those durability, the durability of that trait is is not always stable. You know, as as there are drifts in population genetics, and as there are environmental factors that become uh, more salient in in causing conditions. And you know, we're going off of of genetics as well, and and going off of what you were just talking about. I was researching a little bit on, you know, are genes set in stone? Is it something that, you know, is, it can never change due to environment? It can never, like, you know how you have the strand, right? I, I mean, you obviously know this. Mm -hmm. There's a strand of genetics. Yeah. Can that literally change based on different environments? And I don't know how yeah. liable yeah. this is, but they've, uh, the research that I was show, or looking at showed that those that are in different environments or they even like they did a study on twins, for instance, and they're actually yeah. starting to see that different environments or, you know, even childhood trauma, abuse, uh, sexual abuse, et cetera, it actually changes yeah. their genetics just a little bit. It's not like it, they turn in and they start growing a third arm or anything like that. It's, yeah. it's not well, that. Well, there's, but... there's two conditions that are relevant here. So, so there are epigenetic factors that can be mediated by environment. Um, and, and those, you know, in a sense, are changes in the the genetics of an individual, or they're they're factors that modify the genetics, um, but it doesn't necessarily change the the germline genetic sequence um, that that you have. There are also mutations that arise. I mean, most cancers have a series of mutations that somewhere in there, um, you know, when you have colon cancer, it only comes after you have two or three hits to a cell. That that make it likely to proliferate un proliferate uncontrollably, and so you do have mutations that arise throughout our life. You know, uh, every time our DNA is copied and cells are replicated, there's the probability of some errors, and some of those are most of those are meaningless. But every once in a while, one will be significant, and so mutations that arise can be related to disease, and and like I mentioned earlier, there's also certainly epigenetic factors that we understand a lot better now than we did 20 years ago. Can, can trauma or, you know, you know, relating to mental illness, you know, somebody that mm -hmm. experiences high amounts of trauma or, or even just regular or small, whatever it is, if, if they get pretty extreme where it's, you know, a sexual abuse, if it's emotional, physical, you name it, they experience some kind of trauma or they see somebody get killed in front of them, or maybe they see that quite often. Is that, could that also be, could that stuff change your, your genetics? Not, 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 you know, like you said, you can't change the actual, uh, I don't remember what, what it's called, but you can't change yeah. what you are, but could, could you see some changes in their genetics based on those types of experiences? Well, well, that certainly is influential and impactful. Those types of experiences. Um, could that result in some epigenetic changes? Probably. Um, I, I'm not really expert at that particular question, but uh, I, I also, would would say that it, it certainly changes, you know, software in the brain. You know, when you have a, a powerful traumatic adverse childhood event, um, those are those are very meaningful and impactful. And so, you know, you were saying that you know different mutations can, you know, if they happen only a few times within one cell, it can start to really replicate and and cause a lot of damage within somebody's body. Mm -hmm. uh, are you guys? Is that? Can you guys see that there's a, a correlation there between, you know, mental illness, having those types of situations where one thing happens to them as a childhood and it kind of just snowballs and gets worse and worse and worse like a cancer or, or what have you guys uh, been able to see? There aren't a lot of, of mental illnesses that have that model where it's successive mutations that arise over a person's lifetime. I mean, there's things like, um, you know, trinucleotide repeat disorders where, you know, with successive generations, it becomes more prevalent. Um, there's, there's, 
there's things like Alzheimer's disease where the normal aging process interacts with genetic susceptibility, things like, do you have the APOE4 allele or do you have um, you know, variations on chromosome 21 in the amyloid precursor protein that make you more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease? Um, and those genetic predispositions interact with the normal aging process where you have changes in, in genes and cells over time that may uh, initiate the disorder. Um, so neurodegenerative diseases may, to some extent, follow, follow that model, certainly cancer. Um, but uh, uh, so uh, the genetic mutation uh, model of disease applies very much to cancer. It, it probably has some relationship to neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia. Um, it, it is probably not uh, a major player in things like schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder. So when I came back from my mission, I came home early and I was going through some stuff and I got back home and, and I was, you know, at first people were telling me, oh, it could be an anxiety disorder. You know, it could be ADHD, et cetera. Sure. And I never really took the time to look at, you know, what, what the solution really could be. I was just, you know, whatever pill I could get my hand and I was thinking, oh, that would, you know, that's going to solve everything. I'll be happy and yeah. it'll just go away. Um, do you think that people are are doing the same thing nowadays? You know, like we both were saying, it's definitely increased with the use of social media. Are people getting misdiagnosed quite often? And, you know, I know that I was talking to actually, there's a, a doctor named Dr. Wesley Hill up at Utah State University. I talked with her mm -hmm. and she said that the accessibility to to psychiatrists is really low. It's really hard to get a you yeah. know to get a hold of a psychiatrist, and so a lot of family doctors now are having to prescribe, and yeah. they don't have time really to you know sit down and look at you know what's going on in your life. And I'm worried that people are just getting diagnosed with medication when that might not be the solution. That's so, all true. You know that we worry about that a lot too in medicine. Um, you know, at the same time, these are really prevalent conditions. It's not like, you know, I mean, depression is really common. Anxiety is really common. And a lot of people have disabling anxiety and depression. And, and you know, your heart just reaches out because these are things that disrupt and, and really affect people's lives. And we need better access to therapies, but but uh, some of them we don't have great therapies for. Um, others, we, we do have pretty good therapies. I mean, antidepressants work. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy works for depression. Um, we have other therapies. Um, there's a lot of excitement about psychedelics right now and, and, and ketamine and other um, drugs that may be coming online that, that might make a real difference for people with depression. Um, there's, there's, uh, there, there are, there are options, um, for treatment for many of these conditions and no, we don't have it. We don't have enough psychiatrists to meet the demand for, for anywhere close to, to what the prevalence is in the population. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad reality. I, I wish, you know, people had more access to it. Um, I wish I did. I, I, I sure wish I did. And luckily I've been able to, you know, do a little bit of research myself and, and practice cognitive behavioral therapy and, and practice certain, certain behavioral changes in my own life to improve that. But most people don't have time for that. They've got a family, they've got kids, they've, you know, they don't have time for this kind of stuff. And so they, they don't have the, the time that I, I have to research yeah. and, and practice sure. that. But I also see that you know, like you were saying, in different countries, they're they're not they don't have the access to social media. They don't have the access to, uh, you know, whatever it is. You know, the the large amount of information that we can process here in the United States, most other countries don't have that. Um, some some of them do. Not I mean, most people do have telephones. Even in even in third world countries, most of them have tel telephones. But it's not to the right. extent that we have it here. And I'm not sure if you know there's a correlation here, but I'm wondering if maybe. The main problem here is that 
you know, social media, they, I don't know if you've seen studies or, or, you know, even done studies yourself, but even myself, when I'm on social media and I'm at, looking at it for too long, or, you know, it, it really just causes a, disru- a disruption in my life. And yeah. it, you know, sometimes I get those feelings of oppression, anxiety, because you're seeing other people live their lives. They're super happy. Everybody just posts the best things about their life on social media. And unfortunately, yeah. you don't get to see, you know, that everybody else is struggling with stuff too. Would you sure. say that that's a that's a, a key player in this what's going a, on? This is a well understood and recognized phenomenon. It's real. You know, social media is certainly associated with increase in depression and anxiety in young people, especially young women. Um, it probably increases suicidal ideation in young women by a, a, a not insignificant factor, fifty percent or more. Um, the, and and uh, but it's a really hard problem to solve. You know, our as a society, we're co-evolving with technology, and you, you can't just take somebody out of social media in in today's world. You know, it's I mean, individuals can you know quit TikTok or quit Instagram, but but uh, you know, it's it's. I mean, asking somebody to navigate a modern society without a cell phone, you know, these are just not realistic propositions for the population at large. Yeah, maybe you would be more of a a teaching kids younger how to, you know, because you can't get rid of technology. That's how we that's how we live nowadays. And I wouldn't say it's unfortunate because the awesome thing about it is we have access to a lot of things that people didn't have 50 years ago, 30 years ago, etc., but, you know, maybe just as a little bit more training of, you know, watch out, make sure mm-hmm. you're you're not watching YouTube for 44 hours a day. That's yeah, or... a grand experiment. Yeah, I did yeah. a number of experiments, um, studies with a, a colleague in South Korea on, you know, the, the term is, is, is nonsensical, but the medical term is internet gaming disorder. These are just people that are compulsive video game players or have compulsive screen time use. A lot of these people would play, you know, League of Legends or or starcraft or or whatnot and you know as big as video games are here they're even bigger in south korea and so we looked at you know what are the the factors that influence compulsive video game use and there are some some uh some susceptibilities that we found in the brain but we also found that you know there was some training effects too that were maybe beneficial I mean, it's not just a cliche to say somebody has better hand-eye coordination. I mean, it's really true. There's a stronger connection between the frontal eye field and the visual cortex. And, the, you know, there, there are structural changes in the brain, some of which may be adaptive that arise from playing video games. Now, that being said, there are also people who, who just can't control it. Just like so many other addictions, it, it, it can be com- very compulsive. For depression and anxiety, there are opportunities for therapy that are non-pharmacologic. Um, that's an absolutely true statement. And 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 to have a condition be over-medicalized, where we think it's all about a pill, is not healthy, especially for conditions in the realm of mental health um, conditions, because um, we we want to to combine that with, with lifestyle changes. Um, there's some, some really interesting evidence for addiction, for example, that if you take somebody who, who has an addiction, be it to opiates or, or some other drug, uh, and you change their social environment, often that in itself is enough to cure the addiction. Um, whereas, the, the pharmacologic therapies we have for addiction are poor, frankly. I mean, for opiates, people can go on, um, you know, methadone therapy or, or something where they take a substitute for the drug. There are some things that help get people over the hump, but, but uh, the lifestyle changes are incredibly important in treating addiction. Um, Psychotherapy is very helpful. Uh, these are these are things that I I wouldn't say about someone who has pancreatic cancer. You know, it's not 
lifestyle changes are not going to affect somebody with pancreatic cancer, you know, just on the margins. Um, these are, these are unique to mental health conditions. Yeah. I I like what you say there because, you know, I really am interested in, in maybe looking more at what you were just saying, you know, the, the social environment can really change somebody's situation mentally. I've actually, you know, I've experienced that myself and I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life, but when I've been in a crappy situation, I've noticed that it's usually because my environment isn't that great, right? Where I'm not being treated well, or I'm not treating myself well, you know, there's, there's all sorts of uh, different Mm -hmm. variables that go into it. And that's what I'm wondering is, is I've seen studies where mental illness or mental illness is usually treated the most effectively with uh, CBT, with cognitive behavioral therapy and medication. Mm -hmm. It's off and on, but the biggest factor that affected people the most was, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or just therapy in itself. So I I just, I don't know. What's your, what's your opinion on therapy? Very powerful. So, so what we are, are our thoughts and and our thoughts, you know, they, they come and they go. And we have thought spirals that we descend into. We have ruminations. We have uh, the times where we have unhealthy thought patterns. And we can change those. Absolutely, we can change those. Um, I, I, I am a huge fan of of mindfulness-based therapies. I think learning to focus your attention is an enormously powerful therapy that can change the lives of individuals. Um, I think that it is possible to learn, to train yourself, to focus your attention on healthy thought patterns, to not dwell in durable, unhelpful mood states. So would you caution people to wait to get medication and first begin with therapy and mindfulness? Like if you were talking with somebody who was going through depression, anxiety, et cetera, or even bipolar or schizophrenia, those that are a little bit more different, because I know with bipolar and schizophrenia, those almost require medication from what I could see, you know, that you can't really make a change, you know, they can make changes for little periods of time, but then it comes back. It's not like depression where people can improve it. Um, So when, when you would, if you were talking to somebody and you wanted to help them out because they're going through a depressive state, would you recommend that to, if they're going to get diagnosed to get diagnosed by psychiatrist instead of a family doctor? Um, Well, not necessarily. I, I think it it depends on the individual and the severity of the the episode. So um, keep in mind that for young people, suicide is one of the biggest risks of death that people have. You know, suicide and accidents, I mean, it's common. And the last thing I would want to do is to tell somebody to not treat their mental health seriously or to downplay it because... You know, it's a real thing. People, it, we, we, I mean, we we have so many young people that that are dying that they don't need to. Yeah, due and, to suicide. So, so if somebody's having suicidal ideation, yes, you need therapy. You need to. You probably need to try medical therapy as well. Um, you know, if somebody has a a, a more minor feeling where they're down and maybe don't know why. Um, I I think that you don't necessarily have to say every case has to be solved medically. I think that it's smart to, to not wait until you're incapacitated to, to explore either psychotherapy or medical therapy but but uh, I think symptoms need to be managed and most of these mental health conditions are managed they're not cured we uh, 
they, they can come and they go and they depend on our life circumstances and they interact with stressors that we have in life. And, and some of those stressors are changeable. Some are not, or some of them are going to take a long time. There are some family dynamics that can take a long time to resolve or, or, or very difficult at all. You know, you have uh, a woman who's got young children and there are just unique life stressors that are part of the part of the package uh, and that has to be managed um and so so the unsatisfying answer is it depends it depends on the severity it depends on the individual yeah um we have a, a, a stable of tools and we should use all of them yeah. Uh, well put. I really like what you had to say there. Um, Jeff, is there anything else like, you know, especially because mental illness is such a broad topic and a lot of people are trying to pinpoint what their problem is. What would be the the number one thing that you'd recommend to the listeners to just start improving their mental health? Right. So whether there are, I, I hope people aren't at this stage, but if they are at the brink of suicide, what can they do to, to back away from that? Or if they're just starting out where they're feeling depressed, what, what would be the first yeah. stage that you well, are two different things. So if somebody is having suicidal thoughts, they, they should get help. They need to tell someone they need to, 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 to find someone supportive that can help them navigate that wouldn't that be main therapy it may mean medication but that's not something that you should trivialize or, or mess with i mean it's a, it's a real danger it's common it's uh it's something that that will get better with treatment and and uh now in other cases where you know there's not an acute um life-threatening situation but you want to manage your mental health um, there are a few things that I think are really helpful. I think exercise makes a huge difference. I think that meditation can make a huge difference. I think that cultivating healthy relationships makes a huge difference. Um, I think that, um, finding and pursuing hobbies, um, things that can put you in a flow state is, is, is healthy. Um, I think that um, diet can can I mean there's there's so many of these things these lifestyle things that can matter, um, but the biggest impediment is getting started. It's you know seeing lots of choices before you and thinking well what do I do? Well we'll pick one, um, pick one and and uh, and and see if it 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 can help. The world is amazing and beautiful and wonderful i mean get out there enjoy it um you know as much as we focus on on illness and disease there's there's uh, an unprecedented opportunity to love and enjoy life and the people in it thank you so much for tuning in guys and join me next sunday for a new episode <laughs>